We all know something of uh, what it is to go into the doctor and get a checkup uh, and what that experience is like. I, I dare say everybody in this room knows something of, of what that is like. Um, you go in, and of course, if, if the doctor is going to do their, his or her job, there's going to there be some diagnostics run on you. And that might take various uh, forms. It, it might be some tests that are run and lab results that then come back and um, some, some analysis, some something there. It could be just some questions, you know, so how, Mr. So-and-so, are you, you feeling how Ms. So-and-so, uh, you know, how's that been going, or tell me more about that, and, and they'll, they'll press. And, and all of that is to get a, a bead, to get a read on your physical well-being. In fact, I think it's probably why they call it a physical, right? Um, there, there are similar, there are parallels uh, to, to that sort of examination if a, if a spiritual was done on you. Um, if, if we were to, to delve into, so how are you doing, not just physically, but how are you doing spiritually? Um, there are some diagnostics, if you will, that, that can be run there as well. Um, tests that could be done, and not, not anything that could be taken to a lab, of course, but maybe, you know, reflecting on responses that, uh, your, your own responses to certain things that have taken place. So, so tell me what what did you say? What did you do in response to what they said and what they did? And, and can you tell me maybe why you did that and what you were hoping to achieve and sort of you know delving into that? And that can give you a read on some things going on in here. Um, or, or perhaps going a little more incisively, a little bit more directly into some spiritual component of, of your life. So tell me, and this is oftentimes, it's a great touchstone question. And it's the question that you don't really want to have asked to you. Tell me about your prayer life. Now, most of us will answer that question this way. Oh, it's fine. By which we really mean it's relatively non-existent, unfocused, and joyless. Now, that's a problem. When spiritual diagnostics are being done, when that sort of result is found, that's a problem. And I dare say, if we're honest, you know, Colin was saying earlier he was he's sick of himself. You know, I think many, some of us, you know, when, when we're delving to that topic, you know, how's your prayer life? We might be sick of that ourselves. So, okay, does the Bible have anything to say about this? Well, that's kind of a soft pitch, isn't it? Um, yeah, of course it does. Um, are there, is there any therapy? Uh, is there any... Um, uh, in, in any sort of rehab that could be done for such joyless prayer warriors as ourselves? Um, yeah, yeah, there is. And uh, if you've got a Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn to, to the, what I'll call the heart of the Bible, the Psalms. Uh, the Psalms. Psalm 16 is uh, where I want to look together here as something of a case study in all of this. Um, certainly there are other places we could look to within the Psalms. But Psalm 16, if you're trying to find the Psalms, I will spare you the trouble of looking in your table of contents. Basically, just open it up halfway. And uh, it's, it's literally the heart of the Bible, not just metaphorically, but, but literally. And, and so Psalm 16 is, is where we are. And I'm going to uh, read this, and if you'll follow along silently, uh, know again that uh, this is the Word of God. So let's uh, pay heed to it. Psalm 16, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. 
As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray together. Lord, as uh, your servant Augustine said so many years ago, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. And I dare say there are no few of us this morning that are feeling restless. And it has to be at least to some degree because we are not resting in you. So from the outset of uh, this little study, we confess that and ask that you would help us to rest in you, help us to know a little bit better, and, and know not just with the head but with the heart what it really may, looks like to rest in you. And we pray that you would uh, use your word uh, speaking uh, to us by the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, shining light this morning on this dark, wet, cloudy day, um, we pray that uh, you would shed light. There is so much gloom and so much fog, and, uh, so much fuzziness to our thinking and our living. Oh, we pray that you would shed light. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. There are, when it comes to the topic of prayer, uh, no few resources no few collections of prayers that are, are good, uh, helpful guides, helpful instructors along the way, as we're, uh, things that can kind of take us by the hand and lead us there. Um, in the Anglican tradition, certainly one beautiful one is the Book of Common Prayer, to be sure. Um, uh, in the, uh, from the Puritan tradition, a more recent publication, some of you may be familiar with this, The Valley of Vision, that, that would certainly be yet another. Um, Actually, older than either one of those would be a, you know, any grab most any hymnal, uh, which are really, when you think about it, in many cases, prayers in lyrical form set to music. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but that's really, in, in essence, what many of our great old hymns are. I say that these are can be helpful. These can be helpful guides. They can be helpful instructors, to the degree that they are consistent with what we find in the Psalms to the degree that they match, that they are parallel with, that, they, are, that they, they track with what we find in the heart of the Bible, the Psalms, those resources, those collections are then helpful. Now the Psalms are so different. They're so different in so many different ways. Actually, I'll give you just, just three here real quickly. Um, 
First of all, the Psalms give us a, a very different message as far as what we're to do with our emotions, what we're to do with our feelings and the place of emotions and of feelings in our lives. Now, now many will say today that uh, you should just vent them. You should just get them out as though emotions and feelings are just everything. And so just let it fly. That's one view. Another view, though, instead of just letting it fly, is to suppress them, to bury them. So one view would say they're everything, and the other view would say they're nothing. And they're both wrong. They're both wrong. The Psalms show us, don't make them everything. Don't make them nothing. Pray them. Pray your feelings. Pray your emotions. Submit them. Give them over to the Lord and allow Him with a, with a willingness in your own heart to shape your heart in the process and reform, you might say, those emotions, those feelings. Well, that's one distinction. Another would be uh, that the Psalms are just a, a, a different genre of literature. And this is one book you've got here. You could say one book with 66 books in it, uh, in the pages of the Old and New Testament. There are different, you can't, what I'm trying to say is you can't read the Psalms in the same way that you can read the narratives, or the letters, or the prophecies, or the Proverbs. Now, why not? Why can't you just read them the same way? Because it's a different genre of literature. This is poetry. They're prayers. And so you have to read them and come to them and take them on the, the author's own terms. But that then takes me to a, a, the final distinction, and that is, yes, these are is poetry, and yes, they are prayers, but ultimately they're not the prayers of man. This is the Word of God. So these are prayers given to us by God to help us respond back to Him. Okay? These are prayers given to us by God to help us, to equip us, to train us, if you will, in our response back to Him. That's a critical distinction there as, as well, which is really the main point of where I want to go over the next few minutes, and that's simply this, that God has given us the Psalms. God has given us the Psalms. They are, in many ways, you could call it the Christian prayer book. Okay? Uh, God has given us the Psalms as the Christian prayer book, and we would do well, if I can put it that way, we would do well then to learn to pray them rightly, to accept them, receive them, the, the, the Psalms as the gift that they are, understand them and pray them rightly. Now, Psalm 16, I said a few minutes ago, is something of a case study in this. That's what I want to do for the next few minutes. I think it shows us two things, um, two very basic, fundamental sort of things that really you, you could make a case is applicable to all the Psalms. And that is, one, they help us, taking us by the hand, to, sh to see what is it to express our heart in full. And secondly, they take us by the hand, showing us what it is to, that our hearts would be guided to rest. So expressing the heart in full, guiding the heart to rest, real rest. Let's look at these in turn, these, these two very simple, simple points. Now, David, um, here in this, this psalm, I'm going to just kind of walk you through the flow here, uh, these three sub-points, request, recounting, reflection. As we move through this psalm, you'll, you'll see this. Verses 1 and 2, David starts with a very simple, though profound and heartfelt request, a plea 
really. Verses 1 and 2. Listen to what he says. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Now, what's implied with something like that? I mean, obviously what's implied is David is in need. David, whatever, we don't actually know what the, the precise context situation is or point in his life, but clearly the man is under duress. And so he's crying out to the Lord to be his refuge, to keep him safe, which actually takes me to, the, to a little sub-point there, and that being that he's crying out to the Lord for protection because he sees the Lord as his refuge. Now David, David knows well what that word means. As a, as a place of safety, as, as a place where you're kept out of harm's way. It's protection, it's refuge. Um, he'd spent years as a refugee being chased by the, the murderous intents of King Saul, right? In fact, it's quite possible this psalm could have been composed in that time of David's life, or at the very least, he has that time period in his mind as he's thinking about what a refuge is. Be my refuge. Be my protector. Be my safety. Okay, so he, he lifts up this request, and then we see an interesting shift from verses 1 and 2 to verses 3 through 8, a recounting. He moves from a request to a recounting. He moves from a plea to what you might call a testimony. He shifts from almost completely, but not completely, quite completely, but basically he moves from you, what is that, second person singular? Yeah, you to he, almost entirely in verses 3 through 8, in this recounting. Um, and it's not for the Lord's sake, as though God's forgotten. It's in essence, I think you could say, David's doing this for his own sake, as he's, he's just prayed that the Lord would be his refuge. And then he begins to recount these things, that these things would be brought to his mind, to his heart, that he would be reminded and refreshed in some realities that are already true, even as he has made this plea, this request. Let me walk you through just three of these, and I, I think you know, thematically you can sort of see here. Verses 3 through 4, he reflects on the company in whom he delights. There's a contrast that he makes, verse 3, verse 4, but the basic point is he's reflecting on the company in whom he delights, in God's people, in the saints, in the faithful ones. The excellent ones. And, you know, by extension, in essence, you know, to reflect, to, excuse me, to delight in God's people is, is, that is a reflection of a delight, having delighted in the Lord himself. That's why he's delighting in the Lord's people. Because of this delight that he has in the Lord himself. He's reflecting on this. He's recounting on, recounting this. The second thing is not just the company in whom he delights, but a contentment. This is uh, verses 5 and 6. A contentment in God's care for him. He's trusting him. Even more, he is treasuring him. Treasuring the Lord himself, not just the gifts, but the giver of the gifts. The Lord is his inheritance, you see he's saying there. The Lord is his joy, uh, his deep abiding joy. So we have this company, contentment, and then the constancy of God's presence. Verses 7 and 8, he speaks of the abiding effect of the Word of God, even at night, as he's meditating on it and it's, things are coming to mind, perhaps especially in times of trouble. But not just is he reflecting on the Word of God, but the God of the Word. 
And his constant presence and that assurance, that confidence that's bolstering David. So that by the time you get, you, you flow through the psalm, you start with verses 1 and 2, this request. You move through verses 3 through 8, this recounting. David's bringing to his mind, bringing to his heart, refreshing, reminding. That then brings you full circle to verses 9 through 11. Let's read that. Um, therefore, you know, this is kind of like based on everything I've said, having said that, having reflecting on that, having meditated on this, therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not. You see, this is what he was afraid of. Now he's, being, he's been reminded of, he's being assured of it, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. That is the, the realm of the dead. That is a, a Jewish way of referring to the realm of the dead. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's his essence, you know, he's gone through the request. He goes through the recounting. He gets through the reflection. It's as though he can say, ah, my soul, my soul. He is your refuge. Do you see? He is, and even more, ah, my Lord, you are my refuge. I knew it. I know it. You are my refuge. Be my refuge now. You are my refuge. Be my refuge now. You are for now. I know that this will not end up, this will not be the end of me. This will not be the end of me. He, even here in the present, the grave is not going to be where this is going to end up. And even more, forever, not just for now, but forever. David is, is speaking here. He's giving us hints of eternal life. You see this in... Uh, Verse 11 in particular of, of everlasting joy, ever-deepening pleasures, or as, um, let me think, C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, the last battle, further up and further in. Okay, that's what, what, what David is reflecting on here and wondering about. And by the way, just I'm going to set this aside real quick, bookmark this, going to come back to it. There's another voice speaking here. Verses 9 and 10. Um, there's a voice behind David's voice. There's someone else speaking. I'm going to come back to that in a minute, okay? Now, the main thing at this point being that David, in this recounting, this recounting has a formative effect upon his heart. That's where I'm going with this, okay? He makes the request. He gets himself to the reflection, but in the middle is this recounting that has a formative effect upon his heart. Um as he is recounting these things and his heart is being renewed. Let me just illustrate this. I guess it was last weekend. I was with some folks from our presbytery. We're talking about not Psalm 16, but something similar in, in how, you know, when you speak something, when you name something, there's a certain power to that. You know, when you just get it out, when you finally acknowledge it, when you finally admit it, when you finally speak it, name it, proclaim it to someone else, there's a power there. It's like you've put a flag on the top of that, that hill, right? And for, for good or for bad, which, by the way, I think is one of the reasons why we need to be careful about what we talk and what we say to each other, because you've just put that flag down, you know, positively, negatively. Well, I think there's something of that here. You know, with, with David, he has, he's now speaking it. He's naming it in this recounting, and I think we can learn something of that. So here's the question in terms of application.
do we need to be recounting, you and I? More specifically, when we find ourselves in times of trouble and crying out to the Lord to be our refuge, what are the kinds of things that we need to be recounting and reminding and having our hearts and minds refreshed in? What do we need to speak? What do we need to name? What flags do we need to put up on top of the hill? Well, I would just venture to say this. That any, any sign, any evidence that the Lord is your trust or ever has been, or that He is your refuge now, or ever has been, in the ways that He has shown Himself faithful to you. Recount that. Dwell on that. Let it refresh your heart. Let, let your heart see, even in those moments, how He already is and has been your refuge. In essence, you're able then in time to, to, to pray, I can't, I can't, I know you've begun a good work in me, and I know you've promised to bring it to completion, but I honestly cannot see where this is going. I know you can. I can't. I know you're my refuge. Be my refuge now. Help me trust you. Help me trust you. Help me rest. You are my rest. Help me rest. See, the Psalms take us there. That's sort of phase one of what I want to look at here. The Psalms, again, are the Christian prayer book, and, and they guide us in what it is to express our hearts and what that looks like. Um, that's the first thing. But the second thing is this, and this is, you might say, takes us to another level, a deeper level, in the way the Psalms take us by the hand and show us what it is to pray. Because on the one hand, you could say, well, the, the Psalms do show us what to pray, but they also show us how. So not just the words, not just the verbiage, but the heart, the impulse that's breathing life into those words. Guiding our hearts to rest. Now, what do I mean by that? I said a minute ago, and you, you know, Maybe it freaks you out a little bit that there's a voice speaking behind the voice. There's someone else. There's someone else speaking these words of David. There's someone else who's, who was actually the fulfillment of this, the true fulfillment of what David is saying here in ways that David couldn't actually completely fulfill. No way. No, no way in his experience. And that's Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 16. Um, you see here, David is, is crying out for someone to be his refuge. Well, Jesus is that refuge. He is our true refuge. He is the definitive answer to the believer's heart cry for preservation, for protection, for rest, for a refuge. He is the one, he's the refuge that we seek, ultimately the one we're looking for, the one that will never fail us. The one that will never fail us. And he is the definitive answer because of his definitive work. It's, it's interesting. Now, keep your finger here in Psalm 16. I do want to come back to it. But run with me to the New Testament, to Acts chapter 2. It's a place in the New Testament where Psalm 16 is quoted. And it's Peter's sermon at Pentecost. So I'm preaching a sermon, I'm going to quote from a sermon, okay? Um, from Peter's on, on Pentecost, 
the coming of the Holy Spirit after the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 31, and it's towards the end, actually it's kind of in the middle, where uh, Peter's going to quote from Psalm 16, and then he's going to draw it an implication. Okay? So I'm going to back up. It's Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Listen, we're coming kind of in the middle of the sermon. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades. That's another way of saying Sheol. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. All right, so what is Peter saying here? What Peter is saying is, is as true as what David is saying for his experience his experience ultimately is pointing to another's experience, another who's going to fulfill completely everything that David was talking about, but on a much grander scale, in a much grander way. Jesus is the one who left the safety, went out into the storm. Jesus moved out into harm's way. Jesus left the refuge of heaven to be our refuge. He, within the cross, in his definitive work, in his finished work, he went through abandonment that we would never be. He went through corruption, alienation, being cut off from the Father that we would never be. In our behalf, for us, so you see, because Jesus is the refuge, we have refuge. He is the fulfillment of Psalm 16. Everything David is looking for Everything David is hinting at, crying out for, it's not about David. It's the son of David who would come centuries later. And in that, he is not just our true refuge, he is our great good. You know, David says there in Psalm 16, um, verse 2, he says, I have no good apart from you. Well, ultimately that you is Christ. Or if you want to skip down to verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. That path to life is the one who described himself as the way, the truth, and the life. He is our wisdom. We have but to listen to him, to watch him, to follow him, and learn what life is. Life is meant to be. But that said, it's life. he's life itself. Because, And I say this because it's not enough just to say he's the path to life, and if you just follow him, everything's okay, because it's not because in your following him, you will fail. And you will fall. And you will find him to be life all the more in that. Because of his forgiveness. 
Because He is your refuge. Because He took the wrath that is due for you and I upon Himself. In the ultimate way, He is our refuge, He is our life. You see, the Psalms take us to seeing how we can express our hearts in full, and it directs us to Christ, who is our rest, our refuge in full. And we need that. Oh, do we need that. Oh, do we need that. I'll tell you just uh, quickly, my, my, uh, one of my favorite films is The Princess Bride. I won't do a show of hands. If you really love Jesus, no, never mind. Um, the tagline, the tagline of The Princess Bride goes like this. I had to look this up. Scaling, this is on the poster. Scaling the cliffs of insanity. Battling rodents of unusual size. Those of you know, R-O-U-S. Sorry. Battling rodents of unusual size. Facing torture in the pit of despair. True love has never been such a snap. It's on the poster. It's a story that promises fencing and fighting and torture and revenge and giants and monsters and chases and escapes. True love and miracles. And of course, if you've seen the film, and multiple times, you know that it delivers all that and in spades. And there's a lot of, of snappy lines that are oft-quoted by, by Princess Dried Bride nuts like me. And, and they're worth recounting, but there's one exchange. There's a particular exchange roughly halfway through the film that's a little different. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of a comedy fantasy movie, fantasy comedy movies. I'm not quite sure which one it is. And a lot of it's so light but there's this one exchange that's not light at all. Buttercup, the damsel in distress, says to the mysterious man in black, you mock my pain. To which he says in reply, with a bit of anger in his voice, life is pain, highness. Anyone who says differently is trying to sell you something. Now that's a kind of like, whoa, this is supposed to be a family-friendly movie here, I thought. I mean, it's, it's kind of, it, it's, it's going against the grain of everything that's going on in that film, but it, you know, it's true. In the middle of this fantasy comedy, comedy fantasy, you get this little blast of truth and reality. Life is pain. Get over it. Yeah, I know life is good too. I have that on a T-shirt. But life is that life is pain won't it won't sell. But it's true. Life is pain. Get over it. Or didn't you know there's a war on? Can I put it that way? Didn't you know? It's kind of like back you know in the days of World War II. You know when people weren't responding to the rations and and you know you got yourself in trouble or you just didn't care and your neighbors like what what are you doing? There's a war on. That sort of thing. It's all hands on deck if I can mix the metaphors. Don't you know? Don't you know of the, the push and the pull of the, the corrupting influences of the world? Don't you know? Don't you know of the bentness and re ready willingness of your flesh to yield to all of that? Don't you know of the temptation and the corruption and the accusations of the devil? Don't you know? Life is pain. There's a war on. Don't you know? We need a refuge, folks. That's where I'm going with this. Don't you know? And the wonderful thing is, as you begin to grapple with who Psalm 16, not just what Psalm 16 is about, but who Psalm 16 is about, and who that's taking us and directing our attention to, we can say with Jesus in mind, 
verses 1 and 2. Preserve me, O God, because that's who He is. Preserve me, O God, for in You I take refuge. I say to the Lord because that's who He is. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from You. We're skipping down to verse 11. Jesus, You make known to me the path of life. In Your presence there is fullness of joy. At Your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Christ is Your refuge. Do you know that? Now there are others who will try to convince you that they are Your refuge. If you'll just give them your attention, if you'll just give them your effort, if you'll just give them your trust, if you'll just lean into them, I'll make it better. I'll make you better. I'll make everything better. Just listen to me. If you would just yield to me in that siren, seductive song. And there's so many things. You have just to have open eyes and ears to see all around us all the time. And sometimes that song will come in, in a very quiet, sort of pseudo, not innocent, I don't know what the word would be, way, sometimes it's there, it just throws itself right at your feet, right at you, like some kind of whore. Trust me, and I'll make it better. I'll be your refuge. It's a lie. There's no refuge except in Jesus. There is no safety. There is no preservation. There is no protection but in Jesus. Any other refuge will not fill you but empty you. It will not quench your thirst but leave you parched like you're drinking seawater. It'll leave you undone. Again, I just want to say Psalm 16 is, yes, it's the words of David, but it's ultimately about the son of David. And the Psalms, God's gift to us, the Christian prayer book, is showing us how to pray rightly, guiding us to where true rest is. I want to end on this, just emphasizing this point on how the Psalms are about Christ. which I, We need to wrestle with that, really wrestle with that. Um, Luke 24, we're not going back to Psalm 16 because I've got like two minutes, three minutes left. Um, Luke 24, this is the third of our, the four Gospels that we have. Luke 24, it's the last chapter in the Gospel of Luke. This is that first Easter Sunday. Jesus is walking on this road to a village named Emmaus with two of his disciples. They're talking. It's an interesting exchange that goes on there, rather illuminating. They certainly need it. We do too. Verse 44 of Luke 24, Jesus says these words. Luke 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now what is he saying there? The Psalms are about me. The Psalms are about me. They are fulfilled in me. They are completed in me. And if we're going to read them rightly, we have to read them with that lens. If we're going to read them the way Jesus intends for us to read them, we need to read it with that lens. You see, there's a value, immense value. Kind of like what we did in part one, my first point, looking closely like with a microscope at the text, at the details of the text. 
understanding what is it saying, what's going on there, how's the flow, the flow of thought and everything else, that is vital. But at the same time, we have to be able to take a step back away from the microscope and see how that one part fits in the larger whole. Because if we don't understand how that one part fits in the larger whole, we don't understand that one part. You're missing it. If we don't understand that Psalm 16 is about Jesus, quick illustration. Um, Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria-Hungary, right? You know who that was. You don't? Come on. Um, this summer, it's the 100th anniversary of the start of World War I. Archduke Franz Ferdinand, assassinated June 1914 in Sarajevo, it's interesting to look at. That's what historians say is the immediate cause of World War I, that assassination. And so it's, it's worth knowing. If you want to know anything about World War I, it's, it's worth understanding you know, all that was leading up to that. It's worth knowing about you know, how he and his wife were in the motorcade and what they were there for and how it was the motorcade got, took this wrong turn and how they got blocked into the traffic and this young radical sitting in a coffee shop realizes, ha-ha, my time has come, and he runs over with the pistol given to him by another member of the plot, and two shots later, we have World War I. It's interesting to know how all that fits together and how that and, and the, the rise of militarism and imperialism and all the intertangling alliances that were surging at that time and in, in uh, Europe's history, how all that fits together and how that led to World War I, but you don't even understand that. Really. Until you understand how World War I leads to the Treaty of Versailles, which then basically leads to World War II. Oh, and that then takes us to the Cold War, really. Oh, and guess what that took us to? Now. So two pistol shots in the summer of... 1914 and Sarajevo brings you to where you are today. Kind of. If you're going to understand the one thing in light of the larger whole. Okay, so Psalm 16, David. What are the details? David is the king of Israel. David is the king of Israel placed there by the God of Israel. And the extent to which David ruled as he was supposed to in justice and mercy he is pointing forward to a greater king who is to come. To the extent that David fails in that calling, which he did, he then points forward to the need of a greater king that is to come. The king who is the refuge that his people have been aching and crying out for for centuries. The king who is, apart from whom that we have no good. The king who is Jesus. The king who is the, the focus and fulcrum and foundation of everything. The king who is the hero of the story. The story of this God come down from heaven for us. And who, taking that initiative, is not even done there, but so wants to engage with us that he gives us the Psalms. That we would know how to respond to him. That's quite a story. And it's true. Let's pray. Lord, um, we thank you for the Psalms and we pray that you would provoke us in wanting to go further and to learn more from them as to how to pray and how they take us to you. 
how they point us to our Savior, the true refuge, the, our life. We, we need rest, and we at the same time have no rest apart from you. We were made to engage with you, and we pray that you'd help us to learn more as to what that means, and we thank you that you have made us, made us for this, and you are so wanting, so desiring that we would engage with you for our own sake, that you take us by the hand and show us how. We pray that um, you would teach us and teach us more. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, let me ask our usher.